phrase that would be good. The idea that sometimes we think that we need to transcend our experience or we would even like to transcend our experience and be something else or be somewhere else or not be at all is really sad when we consider that Jesus came in the flesh, that the incarnation was about God being with us and um, and part of that divine plan is that we're actually frail and that we feel and sometimes we hurt and that all of those things are okay and they are um, something that defines our humanity that will connect us with with God because it's God who made us and breathed life into us and made us human and said it was good. Good morning. Thank you for uh, coming this morning. We, uh, I feel especially qualified to talk on being human um, because I'm certainly not anything more than that, despite the intro. Almost 14 years ago, I was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. Now, the main presenting symptom for me and most other people with Parkinson's is a tremor. So if you hear or feel a little shaking in the room, it's probably me, not you, and uh, it's probably not an earthquake. There are other side effects to Parkinson's disease, including loss of confidence. I'm not sure why, and maybe it's the embarrassment of uh, having a tremor and shaking and worrying about what people will think. Or maybe it's some chemical dysfunction in my brain that robs me of self-confidence. Whatever it is, Parkinson's causes self-doubt in a major way. What causes you self-doubt? This lack of self-confidence was something I felt often during my six years as president of Trinity Western University. And as most of you know, it was a time of the university being under tremendous pressure from government, the media, the public generally, churches, and of Christians of various views in relation to the law school proposed and the community covenant. During those years, I often had asked myself, how does a 60-year-old lawyer who has an incurable degenerative disease deal with the demands of being the president at such a crucial time? I must confess that even after completing my term as president, I had doubts from time to time as to the adequacy of my leadership. But there was something about that, that despite my feelings of inadequacy, there was an unmistakable sense of my calling there. It was in times of deepest doubt and feelings of inadequacy that I remember hearing a rather strange challenge echoing out of my past. It came in the form of three words which you may remember from when you were a kid. I dare you. Remember some time when somebody dared you to do something? 
These were the words that I would hear when I was too scared to pray or even think, when I was in a jam and didn't have a clue as to how to get out of it. These were words that seemed meant to be both encouraging and challenging at the same time. I dare you. Even as I stand in front of you today, I can hear those words and I believe that those words are for me and maybe for you too. The history of those three words in my life began innocently enough. It all started with a simple Sunday school chorus that I learned when I was seven or eight years old, attending a small Baptist church in the Okanagan. Now, when I say I attended the church, I really didn't have much choice because my parents made sure I was there. Uh, so whether I learned uh, much or not is another question, but I did achieve uh, something which I don't think might go, would go over as well today, but I achieved each year I had a bar, and I can't imagine wearing one of these things anymore, but it's sort of, you think you're looking at some sort of veteran with uh, decorations, but it described in, in some form uh, the fact that I had been in attendance for those 10 or 12 years but when I wore them, I looked more like a decorated veteran, you know. But it was for attendance, remember, not for courage or for even knowledge. My Sunday school class was uh, typically small, six or seven students, sitting in a circle listening to Bible stories told by Mrs. Tullock with, while the scenes of the story were depicted on a flannel graph board. Now, I couldn't see you if you had your hand up, but... I doubt whether there would be very many people with their hands up to say they knew what a flannel board or a flannel graph was. This is a picture. Now, that's not Mrs. Tullock, but I think if Mrs. Tullock had been a man, that's what she might have looked like. Not the most appealing picture, but the flannel graph was depicting the stories of the Bible, and uh, we sat through it squirming or otherwise. It's sort of a, a no-tech PowerPoint. And uh, today, of course, we'd have it all on video and we would uh, be entertained by it. But back then, that was what we've got. That's my recollection of Sunday school. I, I hate to admit it, but I, I was a coward at heart. I was always looking for the easy way out. And I had a little preparatory work to do, but I was good at talking myself out of things. Maybe that was part of my leading to a legal career. And if it didn't work to talk my way out, I was prone to run away from confrontation and avoid any activity which required courage. But through my childhood, there was that simple Sunday school song that taunted and challenged me. I would often hear the words in my head. Very few of you may have ever heard of this song, but the chorus goes like this. Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to walk alone. Dare to have a purpose firm. Dare to make it known. Now, you, you should be thankful I didn't have to sing that, but that's the song. It was written by Philip Bliss in 1873 for his Sunday school class in Chicago. 
More about him in a minute. Now, I'm sure that part of my response to this song was the guilt that I felt at really being so fearful. The most, most, uh, but most of the reason that this song bothered me is I kind of resented the challenge to have courage like Daniel. Compared to him, I was a failure. He seemed perfect like some fairy tale character or perhaps a superhero. And frankly, I preferred Samson, who was tough fighting all the time and having great success. And he, he struck me as more of the Justice League superhero that we hear about today in today's movies. But Daniel's biography, as set out in the Bible, in the book of Daniel, and I would encourage you, if you get a chance, to read through that book. It's not that long. Read through that book in the next few days, maybe the next week. But for now, let me summarize the story. Daniel stood out from the crowd in the very beginning. He was a young Jewish man who, following the defeat of the Israelites, found himself in captivity and transported to Babylon with three friends. You may know or remember his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But Daniel and his friends were not the ordinary run-of-the-mill slave labor, which was the fate of most of the other Jewish captives. These four were singled out as the cream of the crop. So as Daniel described, they were young men without a physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. How does that sound for a personal profile? I don't know about you, but the description of Daniel and his friends leaves me feeling completely inadequate. Now, despite the good fortune and special treatment he experienced as a captive, Daniel made up his mind to opt out of taking the special food that had been designated by the king for his special young men in training. Because to eat some of those foods would have been contrary to the Jewish law and his commitment to God. His friends joined him in the decision to approach the chief official of the king and request that they be permitted to go forego the special meals and instead be vegetables and water, the original vegans. This was clearly a risky, career-limiting move for these young men. I can only imagine the pressure that they were under to give in and adopt the societal norms as established by and dictated by the king. Who of us would stick to our guns, cling to our culture, hold on to our religion, and maintain our habits when to do so would threaten our very lives? Remember, this was a hopeless situation. The Babylonians had taken these men far from their homes. They were ruthless and brutal, and the men could have been killed at any time because of their insolent attitude or for no reason at all. But Daniel was a persuasive and confident fellow, and he convinced the king's official to allow this exception of food. As the days and years passed, the king had more and more experience with these four men. 
he found none equal to them. They were considered by the king to be 10 times better than any other advisors in terms of wisdom and understanding. Over and over again throughout the book of Daniel, he does what he believes to be the right thing. He often chooses an unpopular course of action, risking devastating consequences. And yet somehow, he comes out looking very much like the hero. As the story goes on, Daniel continued to outperform the secular authorities of his day, and he was continually promoted by the king. That is, until the king was tricked by his advisors, who had grown increasingly jealous of Daniel, into creating a law that would put Daniel in conflict with the king. In order to comply with the king's law, all the inhabitants of Babylon, including David and his three friends, would have to bow down and worship the king and no other for 30 days. It was decreed that anyone who failed to comply with the law would be thrown into a den of lions. But what did Daniel do? He quietly continued his practice of praying to his God three times a day despite risking a death sentence for disobeying the king's edict. Now, it didn't take long for Daniel's opponents to catch Daniel in the act because they knew exactly what he did and when he did it. They spied on him and invaded the privacy of his home, hauled him off before the king for his punishment. David wouldn't have been surprised particularly by that. He knew the consequences of breaking the law of the king. But he refused to give up his commitment to God even for 30 days and even though it would have saved him from a terrible punishment. What I find particularly interesting is that Daniel had no assurances. We hear nothing and see nothing in the Bible that Daniel had assurances from God that he would not die in the lion's den. In fact, we don't know what Daniel may have said to the king, if anything, before he was thrown to the lions. However, from the context provided in Daniel 6, I'm sure he would have used the same words that his three friends had spoken to the king sometime earlier when they had been faced with a similar fate of almost certain death by refusing to bow down and worship the king. They said, O God whom we serve, the, our God whom we serve is, unable, is able to deliver us, but even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve our God. But even if he does not, we pass over that quickly. Daniel was thrown into the den of lions, but the lions did not touch him. Now, although this famous story sounds a little incredible, it cannot help but challenge us all to be more like Daniel. Listen to the description of his character. Now, Daniel so, so distinguished himself that the king's other leaders tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Does that describe you? Would your neighbors find grounds to challenge and label you as untrustworthy, 
or negligent? Perhaps that's why that Sunday school song I learned long ago gets under my skin. As much as the life of Daniel can be dismissed as a, that of a flawless superhero, as much as his unassailable character seems to set an impossibly high standard for us, it forces me to consider my own lack of courage, my lack of faith, and my lack of conviction, especially when I'm confronted with the demands of today's secular culture. Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to walk alone. Dare to have a purpose firm. Dare to make it known. In many ways, the circumstances faced by Daniel are similar to those faced by Christians today. When I read Daniel, I see many correlations between his story and the story that's being written at Trinity Western University and among Christians across Canada and beyond. I see the story of each of us facing a world that is increasingly unfriendly, distrustful, and even antagonistic towards Christians. I think we are like agents of God's kingdom sent to earth on a mission. We are embedded in an antagonistic culture. Society insists that we need to change and meld in with the values of the day, but we cannot. How many times have you been confronted by society's values tempted to give up following Jesus Christ, told to abandon the old outdated ideas and instead adopt the modern and acceptable values of the day. It, is often, it often seems easier to give in, to fit in, rather than to stand out and be left out. Let's face it, much of society doesn't seem to like Christians very much. To be sure, you might feel outgunned as I do, often afraid and overwhelmed. But regardless of our feelings of inadequacy, we must remember that we are called, just as Daniel was called, and equipped to stand up for our biblical beliefs. The Holy Spirit will empower us to be a positive counterculture influence like Daniel and his three friends. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not advocating a siege mentality that urges us to hide away in bunkers or pursue martyrdom. Neither am I talking about waging a culture war. I like to be liked. Most people like to be liked. Most people like to be accepted and included and laughed with, not at. I like to be popular, have lots of friends, and be respected for my views. Left on my own, I would prefer to agree with others rather than disagree and be different. Sometimes I feel as if I'm a hopelessly captured captive in a hostile culture. Truthfully, I often would rather go along with the crowd than feel alone. But being a leader, and I would suggest that everyone is a leader in some way or other, can sometimes be a lonely place. 
We cannot effectively live out our faith if we make decisions based on opinion polls and approval ratings. We try to do the right thing, but we cannot faithfully live the Christian life in today's world if we're not a, a prepared to face criticism and disagreement. How do you deal with the pressure of criticism? How do we deal with the pressure of criticism? Oh, we could take up an angry challenge and loudly debate those who oppose us, but I get concerned about communicating arrogance instead of love. We can try to avoid all confrontation and tell people what they want to hear, you know, go along to get along. But I can't seem to do that either, at least not if I wish to maintain my integrity. So how do we stand up for Jesus in today's world? I think Daniel offers some wisdom on how to deal with difficulties that we face in a conflict-ridden world. Let me suggest four of them. First, he approached issues with integrity. He realized that he could not be all things to all people. A lack of integrity leads to hypocrisy. It's like being a chameleon that changes color in order to blend in. We are not called to be chameleons. If we accept the claims of Christ on our lives, we must ask ourselves the question used in the title to a book by Chuck Colson, How Now Shall We Live? How now shall we live? Well, second, Daniel approached disputes with humility. It's difficult to find any sense of self-righteousness in the story of, of Daniel. Humility, humility seems to be a virtue that is in very short supply these days. Jonathan Edwards said, we must view humility as one of the most essential things that characterizes Christian, Christianity. Unfortunately, sometimes we Christians see humility as weakness. But as C.S. Lewis said, humility is not thinking of less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Third, Daniel approached conflict with prayer. He kept his priorities straight by maintaining his relationship with God. Life can be really busy. Our best intentions and priorities are often turned upside down and we often give the most important commitments the least attention. We cannot hope to stand firm if we don't fall to our knees in recognition of our inadequacy and dependence on God. Daniel was committed to prayer and dialogue with his God. And fourth, he trusted God for the outcome, regardless of the consequences. I love the title of a book written by Brenda Pugh, who is the wife of Carson Pugh, and it's called, But If Not. If it chronicles the final 588 days of her life from a cancer diagnosis to the day of her death. The title reflects the faith of one who surrendered the outcome and acknowledged the supremacy and sovereignty of God. 
I know a little of what it is like to feel intense disappointment and discouragement. It's easy to trust God in the good times when things are turning out the way we want. What about when things don't turn out so well? A few years ago, a friend of mine was facing a very serious cancer diagnosis and he wasn't expect to outlive a five-year period of time. He found himself worrying about the future, his wife and family, his business, and how to live out the rest of his life. He told me later that he found a certain daily practice that helped him understand how he was to respond to this life-threatening disease. He looked into his mirror first thing every morning and asked himself the question, do you trust in God or do you just say you do? Do you trust in God or do you just say you do? I find that to be a deeply probing and convicting question. We need the same faith that is reflected in the life of Daniel as he faced the lions and his three friends as they faced the fiery furnace in order to answer that question well. These four reasons from Daniel, integrity, humility, prayerfulness, and faithfulness have often helped me. During a particularly difficult time some years ago, I found myself struggling with how to respond to a situation where I felt unfairly judged, personally wronged, misunderstood, and left feeling very alone. It was then that God gave me three simple principles to test myself when I face difficult circumstances. Maybe you will find them helpful as well. Number one is do the right thing. Daniel did the right thing. In other words, question your conclusions. Test them with mentors and faithful friends who know you and will give you the straight goods. Search scripture and pray for clarity until you feel that you have determined what is the right thing to act and respond to difficult circumstances. So do the right thing. Number two, do it the right way. Now, sometimes I go about doing what I'm convinced is the right thing in the wrong way. Take, for instance, the lessons I've learned about email. I've found that attempting to deal with conflict by email or text is rarely the right way. Communicating effectively and sensitively on difficult topics is often extremely challenging the way we do things can easily be misunderstood or misinterpreted, causing more damage in the process. Daniel went about doing the right thing in the right way. So it's not just doing the right thing. It's doing the right thing in the right way that matters. And number three, do it with the right attitude. What's your motive? Daniel had the right motive. This is perhaps the toughest question for you and I to pass. We often have mixed motives or judgmental attitudes rather than having the attitude of Christ, sacrificing, serving, and seeking the highest good. What is the right attitude? Well, Proverbs 16.2 tells us about that. It says, people may be pure in their own eyes, 
but the Lord examines their motives. That's a convicting idea. We may be pure in our own eyes, but the Lord examines our motives. I'm certainly not a Daniel, but something about that Sunday school song keeps reminding me of Daniel and his three friends. It is as if each line is asking you and me a question rather than merely making a statement. Dare to be a Daniel? Do you dare to strive up to live up to his character, his integrity, his humility, his prayerfulness, his faithfulness? Dare to walk alone? There may be times when you feel alone. Are you willing to take that risk? Regardless of whether you're facing an apparent lion's den or just feeling deserted, you can have confidence that God is always with you. Dare to have a purpose firm? What is the purpose of your life? Do you know what God is calling you to do? Does it count for eternity? Dare to make it known? Are you willing to take the risk of sharing the hope of Jesus that lies within you? Now, I don't know why Philip Bliss wrote those taunting words in 1873, but it seems that he had an ability to challenge and yet encourage people in an extraordinary way with his songs and with the way he lived his own life. On December 29, 1876, a Pacific Express train on which Bliss and his wife were traveling approached Ashtabula, Ohio. While the train was in the process of crossing a trestle bridge, the structure collapsed and the train fell into the ravine below. Now Bliss somehow escaped from the wreckage before the carriages caught fire. Facing the flames of the burning train, Bliss went back inside to try and find and save his wife. No trace of either body was ever discovered. Just as I was called to serve as president of Trinity Western when it required faith and courage I did not have, just as I continue to feel overwhelmed with the prospect of living with Parkinson's disease and its increasing difficulties, just as your faith and my faith will be challenged in the days and years ahead, may be stretched beyond our comfort level significantly. Just as we try to do the right thing in the right way with the right attitude but often fall short, let us encourage each other let us challenge each other and let us trust in God. But knowing that you and I cannot do this on our own, let's follow the example of Daniel. I dare you. Shall we pray? Father, we acknowledge our tremendous dependence and need for you. We know that Though we deny it sometimes, we can do nothing without you. We lack the courage, the faithfulness. We lack the character. And yet, you have chosen to use us in many different ways. We pray that you would help us accept that dare, that challenge, to be more like Daniel. 
to be more of the human beings that you made us to be and to live lives that are in honor and glory of your name. We pray now for your continued blessing, not because we deserve it, but because you love us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you at any of our three Sunday services held at Sardis Secondary School on Stevenson Road in Chilliwack, British Columbia. For more information, please visit southsidelife.com.